Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. And welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that meanders through the Museum of Films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've got a seat on the cat bus, and I'm enjoying the ride. So join us on our live quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So yes... Welcome to this mini-season of shows that we record at the British Museum. Jake, welcome back into the Ghibliotech. Oh, it's, it's always lovely to be back, and what a, what a lovely setting to be returning in. Mm-hmm. So we should say what these episodes were, really. Yes. If you're looking at this episode title and thinking, I'm sure they've spoken about that before, then you're not going mad. We, we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a great opportunity for almost a redux on some of these films, yes, exactly. where we've We've gathered some people who are going to have some really unique insights and interesting thoughts uh, on films like My Neighbor Totoro, Pompoko, mm-hmm. uh, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, and The Wind Rises. So we've got films that we covered back when we started mm-hmm. and films that we've only recently covered as well. But we're really excited to be sharing these conversations. And we were so honoured when uh, Bryony Smith and Freddie Matthews at the British Museum were putting together this adult programming strand of screenings in support of the Manga exhibition that's been running this summer and finishes at the end of August, so you still have some time to go and see it if you're listening to this as it comes out. Um, and they put together such a great roster of guests for us to talk to, people who could provide insight that we couldn't oh, <laughs> in a yeah, million years. absolutely. And what a great selection of films as well. Uh, to see a full sold-out screening for Pompoko. Of all films, was such a wonderful sight. Must be a highlight for you, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this episode. We have Nicole Roumanier, who's the lead curator of the Manga Exhibition, as well as the founding director of the Sainsbury Institute. Uh, she's just an absolute font of knowledge for Japanese culture. I remember when we first met her, she spoke a great length about Captain Tsubasa, yes. the football manga, which I think you want to try and find an English translation Absolutely. of Absolutely. And uh, that first conversation we had back when I knew even less than I do now, and so I was <laughs> kind of glazed over in amazement at this this fountain of exactly. Japanese art conversation. And also our other guest this week is somebody who I, I've wanted to get on this podcast since we, we began. It's Helen McCarthy, who, well, in the world of Ghibli fandom, I mean, she literally wrote the book on Hayao Miyazaki, um, the, the, the first monograph about Hey Miyazaki himself and his work was written by Helen as well as she co-authored the anime encyclopedia 
but her whole career it dates back nearly four decades worth of championing academic work, programming, working on the very first anime conventions in the oh, UK. Yeah. Like her cosplay skills are unparalleled, exactly. as well as her anime knowledge. Exactly. I think she did cosplay before it even had the term cosplay. Um, in, if anyone's been to the manga exhibition, you can find a little picture of Helen um, from, I don't know when it went from, but way back when, with a, spotting a fantastic costume. <laughs> but anyway, we were so honoured to have Helen on. She, she, her name's come up before. She was interviewed by Beth Webb all the way back on the My Neighbor Totoro episode. Uh, Beth mentioned um, talking to Helen. And also Jonathan Ross said that he always bowed down to Helen's superior <laughs> knowledge on Japanese cinema and anime, and particularly Studio Ghibli. But gosh... Some of the stories and knowledge and theories that Helen comes out with in this episode are fantastic, yeah. aren't they, Jane? Yeah, there's a little tinfoil hat moment, so get them ready to put on. So we join this conversation halfway through the first question, uh, which was about the relevance of Studio Ghibli to this manga exhibition, and Nicole is handling that question. So what we want to do in this exhibition was um, end with anime. <laughs> in a way, you know, so the last section is beyond manga. And so we have um, our Ghibli wall. We have on one side all 22 um, films, clips from that, and then two in-depth um, looks at Takahata and Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. And we worked very closely with Ghibli mm -hmm. itself, Studio Canal, of course, but um, with Ghibli itself to find out what they wanted, what they felt was best. And so in a way, we end with that, but it's not quite the ending. There's a other sneak ending after that. So those who haven't seen it, I'm not going to give a spoiler. So <laughs> you have to see it to find out what the true ending of the exhibition is. And Helen, um, within the wider world, I mean, out outside of manga and inside of manga and as its own entity, where do you see Studio Ghibli relating to the exhibition? Well, people tend to forget that Miyazaki has also done manga, mm. particularly in this country where we haven't seen a translation of Naushika or Shuna for quite some years. But Miyazaki has made a manga of his first solo movie, Naushika, The Valley of the Wind. And he also made a manga before that called Shun's Journey. And he's done several small short manga at different times for other projects. For example, he did a, a wonderful thing called The Age of Flying Boats around the time of Porco Rosso. So Miyazaki has worked in manga. And he said himself that he never thought he'd come to drawing manga because the only thing he could actually draw was airplanes and battleships but that he struggled with it because he loved manga so much and he really admired the work of Osama Tezuka, but he didn't want to do manga like Tezuka. He says he saw Tezuka as an older brother with whom he struggled. And then when he left university and he got accepted by Toei Doga for their animator training program, of course, that kind of set his course and he fell in love with the idea of making animation. But all the time there's been this really strong link with manga and you can't separate manga and anime in Japan, the way you separate it in the West, because they come from the same cultural gene pool. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. And actually, there's a bit of Shuna in the exhibition, I believe, in, mm -hmm. that you can read through. I'm fascinated to read some of that. It's not been translated, but it has some DNA shared with Tales from Earthsea, mm -hmm. his son's anime that is half an adaptation of the Earthsea novels by Ursula Le Guin, but also half an adaptation of his dad's own work. Yes. So maybe any deep nerd Ghibli fans out there, that's something to have a look at. <laughs> but Helen, we were just mentioning how Studio Ghibli has become this cultural monolith in its own right, larger than 
manga, larger mm. than anime as a form, larger than Japanese culture even as an international mm -hmm. brand. How did that happen? And what is the role that Totoro has played within that? Well, actually, it happened very, very slowly. Mm. I mean, people don't realise that when Totoro was, was pitched, Miyazaki had real trouble getting finance for it. Uh, Toshio Suzuki, who's been the Studio Ghibli fixer ever since Nausicaa, since before Ghibli was founded, uh, pitched it with Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies as a package, telling um, backers that because Grave of the Fireflies was a set text in J Japanese high schools, the film couldn't fail. You know, if we put them out together, schools will come to it because of Grave of the Firefly. So when Totoro started out, some money men in Japanese banking and, and other institutions were actually saying, so this is a film about two little girls in the 1950s and a big fluffy creature. It's just not going to work. <laughs> Nobody's going to come and see that. And it took about three years for Totoro to get off the ground in terms of merchandise. But once the ball was rolling, it just kept rolling and gathering momentum. And Totoro returns a very large proportion of income to Ghibli every year in the merchandise. And I think it's, I mean, for me, it's because, disclosure, Totoro is my favorite movie. <laughs> not my favorite anime, not my favorite animation, not my favorite Ghibli. Totoro is my favorite movie of all time. To me, it is the perfect film. And I think the thing that people respond to in it is probably the same thing I respond to in it, that it treats a small child's world with absolute honesty and absolute respect. And it literally brings you to the level of Satsuki and Mei in walking through that world. Plus, of course, it's drop-dead gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful films you're ever going to see. I think that's, that's probably why it's built its momentum. But in the beginning, it wasn't certain, was it? It wasn't anything like certain. Mm. And something that fascinates me, and it feeds into your mm. life's work, really, is the way that these films were received in the West. When I was growing up in, as a teenager in the late 90s, early 2000s, this was sort of, you'd go into Chinatown in Manchester and maybe you'd get a Region 3 oh, yeah. DVD or VCD of this. It must have been even harder to locate, certainly in the early 90s. It was almost impossible. When we, when we started looking seriously at Britain's first convention anime showing, mm. there literally was nothing that you could get. You could go down to Chinatown in London and you could go into shops that sold Hong Kong magazines and newspapers and get A Club, which was the knockoff of the Japanese magazine B Club. <laughs> A month after everything came out in Japan, all those clever people in Hong Kong had translated it into Chinese and put another magazine together at about £2.50, I think it was at the time, whereas to get a Japanese import magazine, 15 quid, no contest. Everyone who was a fan at the time went and got, got, a, got a club and went and got the Hong Kong papers. Mm -hmm. But that was literally all you could find. It was really, really difficult. And it wasn't until, I think it was about 93, that uh, the BBC showed um, Tenkon Ashirodaputa, A Castle in the Sky, mm -hmm. uh, through the same company that used to do a series called Silk Road. Right. They got a connection for the film and managed to acquire it. And it was on, on a bank holiday... I forget which bank holiday, but it was on a bank holiday, and I only found out about it because my sister rang me and said, you know that Japanese stuff you watch? <laughs> well, the kids, she had a boy of five and a girl of three at the time, are sitting down watching this subtitled, and they're absolutely fascinated. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And what was the first one that 
you found as well. Was that Totoro? The, the first? first one I saw was Totoro. It was when we were putting together the programme for the uh, British National Science Fiction Convention in 1990. It came out in 88. The, 88 was a fabulous year. <laughs> Grave of the Fireflies, Totoro, Akira, mm-hmm. you know, movies coming out of, of Japan like nobody's business. But it came out in the summer of 88 in time for the school recess so that kids could watch their set book film and then go and write an essay about it in the holidays. Yes, we do that to children too. <laughs> but um, So I first saw it in the January of 89 in a totally illegal and really, really low-grade um, American fan subtitled version. And I just looked at it and thought, I've got to know who made this film. And that was really... I mean, I loved anime at that point. I was intrigued by it. I was fascinated by it. But I lost my heart to Miyazaki the minute I saw Totoro. It's just that easy. Oh, wow. Nicole, was, did, was this the fir- your first introduction to Ghibli? Or? It, it was, actually, and, and it, it, I continue to watch it all the time. <laughs> and I have to say I'm guilty of having a number of Totoro goods around the house. And oh, really? I, right. yes, and, uh, <laughs> it, it is incredible. Because I was just looking at some of the numbers um, you know, today just to, to remind myself, but, but what this film grosses and what the goods actually gross are oh, wow. incredible. So mm-hmm. um, what is it? The film grosses about, uh, what is the film? $257 million. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, the DVD franchises, what are that? About 450 yeah. And then the goods, $1.2 billion. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. you have to say a lot of that is in my that's place. That's kind of Marvel <laughs> money, isn't yeah, it? That's, really that's is. Blockbuster Avengers money. This is Ghibli's cars. where the merchandise takings outweigh the the box office but I suppose that is the sort of money that empire is built on as well as then successive generations of Japanese kids is this this something that is almost a a must see for every child in Japan but but you know it's also every time you see it and I I want to hear what you think but I just have to say I was just talk we were just talking Helen right after the film, but every time I see it, I see something new. You yes. know, it, I see something different. And today, what I noticed, and I guess it was the luxury of having a really good version, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're really lucky to have a good version today and also on a big screen. But I noticed when, um, you know, when Satsuki's father was writing his book and I started looking at what books he had around him and some of the things on the wall, I hadn't fully twigged before that he was a Kofun period archeologist. So he's an archeologist mm-hmm. from fourth to sixth century. He had the Asuka, period books, he had a ceramic um, typology there, and he had some of the Kofun period ceramics on the wall. So it was, I mean, just every time you see it, something new reveals itself. Do you, do you find that? Oh, absolutely, and there are so many nuances that you only find if, if you, you, you are very fluent in Japanese, as Nicole is, or if you go into um, the fan areas and look around. For example, the classic one is when May is found by Satsuki and the cat bus, sitting by that line of statues. Everybody in Britain, when I see it with them, heaves a sigh of relief. She's okay. Mm. But they don't know how they know she's okay. Now, if you were Japanese, you would see that line of protecting saint statues, and you would immediately know she's perfectly all right. She's (laughs) under the protection of all these good spirits. She doesn't realize it because she's too young, but she's in a spiritually safe place. And that, of course, also ties Totoro and the cat bus, the nature spirits of Shinto, into the Buddhist saints in the same way that the two 
two belief systems are linked in Japan. So the things that we can learn about Japanese culture by really applying ourselves to the Ghibli movies and to Totoro in particular, quite remarkable. The, this is exactly what you're saying. Those the six they had the six Jizo mm. sculptures there, and Jizo is mm. the as Helen knows um, is the kind of the the deity that protects children, yes. but also protects. It's kind of like a lawyer. It takes you to the underworld and back safely. Mm. So it's, exactly, yeah. you, you want him on your yes. side, yes. honestly. <laughs> Don't piss off Jizo. Not a good idea. <laughs> yes. uh, Nicole, but, oh, sorry. So, so I was just going to say the other lovely thing to me, and that, that I noticed, you're right, that is a beautiful print. Every time I see it in, on a big screen, I, my breath is taken away by how much it reminds me of the Dutch masters, the 16th and 17th century Dutch painters, and the way it uses light, both as a marker of time and a modulator of mood, is very, very similar to that great classical tradition. So, so much to unpack in it. Helen, how many times do you think you've seen this film? Um, I see Totoro at least twice a year. Um, I, Totoro is... Everybody has, I think, works of art or works of literature that comfort them and reassure them when, when times are perhaps a little bit rough or your reservoir of joy is running low, and Totoro is one of, of the go-to ones for me. So whenever, you know, things are a little bit rough or when I'm feeling absolutely marvellous and the, the, the odd afternoon or morning when I've got nothing to do. I'll just bang Totoro on and make a pot of tea and that's, that's me happy. Yeah. So I think some, some quick maths would make that 88 times. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. And um, Nicole, so you, when you're curating the, the films to go alongside the exhibition, um, I mean, in a dream world, we would just have a, a different Ghibli on every night for the whole exhibition. Oh, yes. um, but what was Totoro always the first thing in your head? As the, oh. Without yeah. a doubt, without a doubt. And what we wanted to do with these, so we have four, we're very lucky with Ghibliotech to have, have you for four. What we wanted to do was, Miyazaki is fantastic, but Takahata is also fantastic. And we mm -hmm. wanted to really make an even spread because um, Takahata Isao is, uh, he's fantastic. He's really deep. Mm. And um, the way that he orchestrates and uh, in the films, the way he creates these films, in fact, I think it, they're much more like a Greek tragedy. They're, they're really spectacular. And Miyazaki's films are beautiful and visually satisfying and fantastic, but, um, but they're different. There's, mm -hmm. It's a, just a different experience. So we wanted to have both. And then we wanted to have recent films, but also kind of classics. So we really did a, uh, we did a lot of deep thinking, but um, Totoro was never in question. We had Totoro. And then in the same way, what I one of my favorite films is uh, Pompoko. So I oh, hope you'll all yes. be back for that. <laughs> Pompoko is amazing. And that's really Takahata's is. kind of, um, it's not like Totoro, but it is a, it, it, is worthy. <laughs> no. Completely worthy. I think in his hit rate in the, in the Ghibli period, the five or six films he made in that mm. time, are all classics, really, if you think oh, about yeah. that. I mean, but, he is a great, great filmmaker mm -hmm. and, and has been much underrated mm -hmm. in the West anyway. Not, not so much in Europe, but in the English-speaking West, he's been very underrated because of the prominence and the immediacy and the accessibility of Miyazaki, you have to work a bit harder, I think, with Takahata. Mm -hmm. Because he's not straight out, he's not in your face. And what's very interesting is, I don't know if you saw the, the wonderful documentary, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, yes. about yes, Ghibli. Yes. Takahata appears in that once. Mm -hmm. He never looks at the camera the whole time he's in it. But if you watch him, Miyazaki never takes his eyes off Takahata. Mm -hmm. 
Those two were best friends from the minute they met till Takahata died. And the bond between them is just so incredible. And if you think about it, a man as intelligent and driven as Miyazaki would not have that depth of love and respect for someone that wasn't brilliant. Hmm. That brings up this other theme that internationally, at least, there is this tractor beam towards My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, maybe House Weaving Castle, mm. the films that had maybe the broadest release mm. program across uh, the UK and the States, maybe the, 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 the mo most money spent on dubs and so on, or maybe mm. Oscar campaigns. Is that in some ways, that's only part of the story, right? It, it, we go deeper uh, to look at the other films. I think with any filmmaker, the amount of acclaim they get is only part of the story. Because mm -hmm. as you know, part of that is always fashion. Mm -hmm. What's catching people's attention at the moment? And part of it is how well the filmmaker does their job, obviously. But part of it is how ready an audience is for what the truths that filmmaker is telling them. It's the same with manga. Mm -hmm. Manga become enormous hits and fade. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because there's anything wrong with them, but because they had a fashion at the time and they don't have the depth. Whereas some manga endure, and we've, we've got so many that you can read in the exhibition, mm -hmm. some manga endure because they have the depth to speak more quietly, but more consistently over sometimes generations. Mm. It's a little bit like um, Naushka, mm -hmm. um, Miyazaki's Naushka, and when you see the anime, it's fine, it's lovely. But when you read the manga, it's so much better. <laughs> it's oh, so yeah. much better. It's, it's sort of like a cure, isn't it? It yeah. goes on for yeah. much longer yeah. than you think the boundaries of the yeah. film cover. Exactly. I haven't read the whole thing. I've only read the first couple of volumes, I must admit. Um, <laughs> what kind of what trajectory do you thematically see Miyazaki taking from the Naushka to the Wind Rises over that period of time? Oh, I've got this huge theory, which Paul <laughs> may, may or may not agree with, and you may or may not agree with. But I think from reading the interviews that he gave which um, are remarkably consistent over time, that Miyazaki set out to tell the story of Shuna, of the hero of Shuna's journey, in a film. But Miyazaki's not about conflict. Miyazaki's about conciliation and resolution and working together. And he knew that a hero like Shuna wouldn't work in a movie because he said, in a movie, they want you to set up conflict. So I had to give someone a white hat and a black hat, and then the guy in the black hat has to be a Nazi, and then you're doing Indiana Jones. Hmm. And so to, dis to, to make himself distant from that, he decided to create films that made a heroine the protagonist. Hmm. But he didn't do that. People say Miyazaki's a feminist. I don't think he is. He's an old-fashioned socialist patriarchal yeah. guy. He, he set out to make this line of wonderful heroines from Naushika all the way through to Mononoke in order to make Ashitaka. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're his matrix for Ashitaka, for his hero prince, the guy that he wanted Shuna to be if he'd been able to make Shuna as an anime. My belief is that he did this huge almost Arthurian cycle of films to create the perfect hero prince. And after Mononoke, in my view, where he becomes better known internationally, mm. that's where I think his drive begins to go a little bit wobbly. Yeah. Before that, he was straight as an arrow, mm. straight at, this is the story I'm telling, mm -hmm. don't fight, don't argue, conciliate, talk, find a bridge, he was so passionate about that, so passionate about peace. 
so passionate about humanity and ecology and the dialogue. Once you've done that, where do you go? When you've climbed Mount Everest, what do you do on the way down? <laughs> that is so fascinating. I do see it personally, mm -hmm. Princess Maroki, as the culmination of so many years before that and the peak of his career. We disagree about that. Yeah. Uh, Jake is not a fan so much of the epic adventures. He's more a fan of the Totoros or Ponyos mm -hmm. or Porco Rossos that have a spin on that or a smaller focus. Something that we've discovered watching these films side by side in sequence, usually a wayward sequence, not necessarily chronologically. We've got our own way of doing it. We have our own way, our <laughs> own route through. And looking into the context is someone who is perhaps not mentioned as much internationally as Toshio Suzuki. You call him the fixer. But after a certain point, he's almost there geeing up Miyazaki, saying, just he's, make he's one more He's become the hero movie. of the podcast, in a way, He for has, us. and he yeah. just sorts everything out around these very particular geniuses, both Takahata and Miyazaki, to make sure that the budgets are there, the distribution is there, and so on. Is he the secret hero of the piece? Well, you, you've met him more recently than I have, so what, what do you think, Michal? I, I, I actually do think so, but I want to hear, but I want to hear really what <laughs> I want to, well, because I think you are the authority, but I, I, oh. but I, I have an opinion, but I want to hear it from the source. No, no, no one is an authority on Suzuki but Suzuki. I mean, he's, he's this tiny little pixie of a man. Literally, a little, tiny, fragile, skinny guy. Mountain of energy, never stops smiling. Eternally positive. Mind like a steel trap. More determination than any politician anywhere else in the world, and I include the entire Chinese Communist Party Bureau. Um, okay. You would not cross Suzuki. You really would not, because he is so determined to make things work for everybody. And he's put so much into Ghibli. Without him, there would be no Ghibli. Without him, Miyazaki and Takahata would not have the careers that they have had. And Goro Miyazaki's career would be nowhere, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he is a Suzuki invention, <laughs> you know, as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, there, there was a... about three or four years before um, Tales from Earthsea, mm -hmm. there was a huge poll. Every year, they, they take a large poll in Japan to determine trusted brands. Mm. And in the poll in this particular year, the Studio Ghibli brand was trusted by 63% of the Japanese public, <laughs> which is an almost unheard of figure. <laughs> but the Studio Ghibli brand, brand plus the name Miyazaki was trusted by 92% of the Japanese public. And this is only my opinion, mm -hmm. but I think that Suzuki looked at that and thought, hmm, Miyazaki. <laughs> it only says Miyazaki. It doesn't say which Miyazaki. Where can I find another Miyazaki? <laughs> and there was one whom he'd known since his childhood. You know, Suzuki has known both Miyazaki and his wife. And in fact, once said that Miyazaki's wife is a far better animator than her husband has ever been. Um, but he's known the, the boys since they were kids. So, you know, if, if your father's old friend comes up to you and says, we need someone to turn the studio around and I think you can do it, what do you say? You know, how do you <laughs> say, no? say no? You can't say no. But that, that's my theory about Suzuki. I think to a, to a great extent, Ghibli is the creation mm -hmm. of Toshio Suzuki. Mm -hmm. it's, it's his kingdom of dreams and madness. So let's talk about the legacy of Totoro, something that we talk about. Now that we're coming to the end of the Studio Ghibli canon in the podcast that we're doing, we're looking at where we could possibly go next. And I imagine mm -hmm. the industry, every time Miyazaki threatens to retire, uh, <laughs> thinks, where can we possibly go next after Miyazaki? So 
there must be a struggle within the anime industry to look for the next Miyazaki. The anime industry is far too busy struggling to get everything made on time and on budget. Because no, honestly, the anime industry is vicious. I mean, there's something called the curse of Tezuka in the uh -huh. anime industry, much more so than in the manga industry. When Osamu Tezuka first pitched Tetsuan Atom, Astro Boy, which was the first successful continuous animated series in mm -hmm. Japan, he pitched it at a price that was ridiculously low. Like, I mean, so low, they couldn't even pay the studio running costs on what he was charging. Mm -hmm. And he did that because he gambled that they would get enough sponsorship and advertising to make up the money. Uh -huh. And they did. And it rocket-fueled Tezuka Productions and carried him through to the mid-70s when he managed to bankrupt himself, because that was just Tezuka for you. Yeah. Uh, but, but every studio since has had to face the fact that money people, TV, TV companies buying stuff, turn around and say, well, you can't charge us that for half an hour because we've got it so cheap for years. You'll make mm. it up on the sponsorship and the advertising. It's so difficult to survive. Kids are coming into anime every year and sleeping on a tutatami mat space in the studio under their desks and eating pot ramen every day for two years, and then going home to the provinces broken to take the job their parents always wanted them to take in banking. And that is literally, that is the truth. The anime industry eats, chews, and spits out so many young talents because you have to want it so badly to put up with the hours and the lack of pay and the lack of respect and the grinding, grinding work so that's the anime industry's big problem. It's not who succeeds Miyazaki, it's can we get this bloody thing made before the courier comes to take it, take the, the neg for the print to be struck, for it to be shown at the studio. And that usually, ha I mean, in some cases, on major series, the film is going to the studio, or nowadays the digital copy is going to the studio, half an hour before screening time, literally. Wow. I th oh, yeah. think it's probably about time that we send some microphones around. Yes, of course. Yes, we do have as well. microphones at the wings of the auditorium. Any questions at this stage? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, I have a very strange question, maybe. Um, so the title in English is My Neighbor Totoro. And I was just wondering, is Totoro a person's name or is Totoro the name of the creature? Because there are three of them. Uh-huh. Totoro is an invented name that Miyazaki made for the creatures, but they are all called Totoro. So Totoro is possibly a species name. Mm-hmm. There is Chibi Totoro, Dai Totoro. Chibi Totoro is the tiny. Dai Totoro is the bigger one, and Or Totoro is the huge one. King Totoro, King of the Forest, or God Totoro. Um, but we we tend to think of Totoro as the big guy and the other ones as the little Totoros. You could think of them as a family if you like. Think of it as a family sitcom. Meet the Totoros. You could just as easily translate it that way, couldn't you? Really? Helen, you've written about Totoro, the character, very more than anyone. How would you describe him? I would describe Totoro as absolute acceptance and unconditional love made furry. (laughs) <laughs> that's perfect I was, I was going with <laughs> rabbit, bear, cat because <laughs> he is isn't he I mean Totoro doesn't ask any questions about who you are he doesn't critique who you are he just accepts you as you are and will do whatever he can for you it's, in a way it's, I think it's a metaphor for the way that nature continues to embrace us regardless of how we violate it and, and that I think is I, I find that very helpful yeah. and he can play a pipe <laughs> oh, a mean ocarina. <laughs> if ever he loses his job as a forest spirit, he can get work on Legend of Zelda. <laughs> if this was, I think we've got people out there who are some Ghibli diehards, but if there was somewhere to go after My Neighbor Totoro, what would be the next film in the Ghibli canon, in your opinions? This is literally exactly what Helen and I would have done. If It is almost yeah. impossible to make a wrong choice. Would you agree? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is almost impossible to make a wrong choice. Personally, Just I would avoid Goro's films till you've seen <laughs> The Masters. Till you've seen where he came from. But that's just, I would do that with almost any filmmaker. I would avoid um, a junior filmmaker's work till I'd seen the people who taught him because I like to understand things in that way. For me, I would say go to Porco Rosso because it's as different as it can be and go to Pompoco because it's as different as it can be. And they are two films that in their own way will take your breath away. Would you, would you, would you pick something different? Or? I think I would, but I agree with you, but I, would, I think I would pre- pick uh, Mononoke Hime, Princess mm. Mononoke, because uh, first of all, he, I think it takes on from Totoro about nature spirits, mm. tree spirits. It has some really incredibly impressive scenes within the tree and all of the little, um, all of the wonderful little spirits around. Mm. And mm. I think it's a little darker. It's a little mm. bit more, um, it tackles uh, prejudices. It tackles a number of different um, themes that Totoro um, doesn't need to. Totoro is, is, you know, in a way almost inchoate and just beautiful and, and uh and, and a kind of a, a perfect haiku in itself. Mononoke Hime is a little bit more focused, but I do think it, it moves on, so I would definitely recommend that. This is a long way of saying you need to watch yeah, it. Yeah, again. I should probably give it another go. I do, just going quickly back to Helen, I think Tales of Earth is underrated. This, is, this was the, the, the most controversial episode of our series so far. Yeah. Jake quite liked Tales from Earth more than. Did you like it more than House Moving Castle? I did, yep. 
Uh, but so. not not more than Totoro. Oh, no, nothing. No, no <laughs> way. So that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I must admit, with, with Earthsea, I find that really difficult, but I find that really difficult because of the, the saga around its production. Mm. I mean, as a film, to me, it's Miyazaki light. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's accessible I mean, Miyazaki. This was uh, yeah. part of the joy of doing the show that we do is that I'm ignorant to so much of this and to the history and the production mm. of it. And then we purposely go into each show mm. where the first half of the episode is Michael mm. giving me a history lesson about the production of that. And the most interesting production history lesson I've had mm. is for the Tales from Earthsea. Well, yeah, because Miyazaki, as you may know, wanted to animate Tales from Earthsea quite early on. Um, he wanted to animate Tales from Earthsea from, from way, way back. And he approached Ursula Le Guin and she didn't have any interest in animation at all. It wasn't an art form that got her. So she said no. And a while later, a friend of hers showed her Totoro and said, isn't this the guy who wanted to animate Earthsea? And she said, oh my God, it is. He's wonderful. Yes, I'll do it. Um, Miyazaki then had a, a full slate and came back to her and, later and said, I'm retiring. But if you let my son direct it, I promise you I personally will supervise it. And so she signed up. She signed up in, I think, April. And in October, Miyazaki started work on Ponyo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if, if Ursula Le Guin was a, an early adopter of blogging, and uh, her blog about oh, yes. the production history of Tales from Mercy is savage. And it's but worth that, a the read. thing is, it's savage in a very polite way. <laughs> because she was the, the child of two anthropologists, so she would never speak dismissively or discourteously about anyone. And she was from an, an old school American East Coast family, so she would never speak dismissively or discourteously about anyone. It's like listening to the Queen of England tell somebody they're a shit without ever using, without ever using a four-letter word. And, and likewise, Goro Miyazaki had a production blog where he went into detail about his father, he said his, he would give his father full marks as a director, zero marks as a parent. Well, you know, <laughs> Harsh. I, I have never been sure, and again, this is purely my opinion, I could be getting this from nowhere, I've never been sure how much of that row was orchestrated by Suzuki for promotional purposes, oh. and you've got to admit it didn't half work. <laughs> This is almost like World Wrestling Federation yeah. type yeah. stuff. Because <laughs> Tales from Earthsea drew in a very, very different audience than the last few Ghibli films. It drew in a teenage audience and an early 20s audience who were seeing Goro as a young guy rebelling against his dad, making the story of a young guy rebelling against his dad, who were seeing it as not... Because you have to realise that now, Miyazaki is like Disney in Japan. Mm -hmm. It's not cutting edge at all. It's what your gran takes you to see on school holidays. <laughs> uh, so Earthsea tapped a new audience for them and I look at that and I think I cannot prove that you did this you would never admit that you did this but Toshio Suzuki you make Alistair Campbell look like an amateur when it comes to the dark arts I'm, obs I'm obsessed with this theory I'd love to I'm, I'm going to dedicate my life to yeah. finding out if that's true <laughs> Nicole, Helen, thank you so much for joining us and oh, talking about you. Totoro yeah. and Ghibli and all sorts. And thank you to both of you and thank you to Nicole and thank you to the British Museum mm. for putting on this sensational exhibition because I don't know whether you guys realise what a huge challenge it is for those of us who've worked on it for years to get manga accepted as a scholarly subject. 
and to have the respect of the British Museum to the extent that they would devote a gallery to it has raised the profile of manga around the world in a way you guys would not believe. It's yeah. absolute. Thank you, British Museum. Cutting edge after 250 years. Not many institutions <laughs> could say that. And yes. as you can see, the exhibition is on until 26th of August, so you've got plenty of time to come once, twice, thrice. Three times. Become a member and come as and, many as you want. <laughs> and we, Jake and I, will be back three more times to present Pompoko, The Wind Rises, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Yes. We have academics, we have critics, we have more curators and artists. We have an artist. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yes. Providing all Sonohitomi. sorts of perspectives on Tanuki and their uh, magical balls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Pompoko and beyond. We'd love to see you there if you'd like to come along. But please join me in thanking our panel tonight. Thank you so much. And there we go. That was our discussion with Nicole Rumanier and Helen McCarthy recorded live at the British Museum. Thanks again to Nicole and Helen and the British Museum team for having us. Yeah, uh, next time we're going to be talking about Pompoko with Japan House's Director of Programming, Simon Wright, and manga curator Matsuba Ryoko. And uh, I'm sure all of you that have only seen Pompoko once and feel like maybe there's more to it than just giant magical raccoon testicles, then this is the conversation for you. And there is plenty of giant raccoon testicle chat as well, uh, if, if, that, if that's what you want. Um, <laughs> But we should say, Jake, these aren't our final films. No, no, not at all. Uh, so this is just a kind of a summer holiday surprise mm -hmm. to do this live series. And we're, we're excited to be able to put it out there on the podcast. Uh, but we'll be coming back in early autumn to kind of finish our plate, really. <laughs> yeah, so we've had a few requests for certain films we haven't covered yet. Maybe Naushka, mm. maybe My Neighbours, The Yamadas. There are a few hardcore fans out there. So we will get to those eventually. This is just a brief pause. Mm, yeah, and... Uh, after that, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> well, exactly. We shall see, won't we, Jake? But until uh, the next episode, you can follow Jake on Twitter at JKH Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.